2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. Generosity encouraged. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then to us in keeping with God's will. So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincere the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor so that through his poverty might become rich. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we, we are continuing this series. You'll find it, if you haven't picked up the, the program, it'll take us right to the end of the year. Uh, and it was under the encouragement of the deacons um, that uh, this quarter should have some specific instruction about giving, not simply because we are committing ourselves to uh, extending the church building and all the ongoing challenges but really as, as um, a principle for our lives as Christian people to be those who are generous. So this Sunday and the next, we're looking at this morning at 2 Corinthians and then uh, next Sunday, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and then next uh, Sunday chapter 9 where Paul gives this uh, condensed instruction to, to the church and it's about giving. Uh, you, you will see in, almost immediately that it's much more uh, that you're to dig deeper into your pockets. That, that would almost be to trivialize it. It is that, but it is infinitely much more. Contrary to public opinion, indeed misinformed thinking, even among church people, Jesus didn't condemn wealth as such. He did, however, and indeed the Pope this week has echoed the words of Jesus of the dangers of crass materialism and aggressive secularism. 
as if we are simply body and brain and we are here to look after ourselves and nobody else. And it's an impoverished culture as well as an impoverished soul that lives like that. Jesus did not condemn wealth as such. Also, Jesus didn't spurn money per se. He didn't. However, as he warned against materialism and its impact on our lives and relationships, so the love of money is a powerful motivator in our lives, which we know. And it's a, it's a constant challenge to us to have uh, the priorities of God's kingdom. We, we should choose to live in a sort of a tension zone whereby we have legitimate needs and yet at the same time God has blessed us immeasurably. Just to say this, when Hannah and I were out in Senegal and we visited Beth and Davis and Tenabu now, uh, we attended their wedding as you'll remember, we went to the clinic and it is absolutely basic, basic. And then to the pharmacy where the cupboards are bare and the shelves are empty. And yet the people are there so grateful for anything, anything that you can do. And yet in contrast to our country, if you talk to Bethan, who is a, is a doctor in, in various hospitals and a trainee GP, how people were constantly demanding, constantly complaining, never having enough. You can't help but wonder sometimes what it is about our society that we may have turned the blessing into something that is a, is a hindrance. So, whether it's on a big scale like that, or in our personal lives, this is something to say to us. If you just turn back to what Neil was saying last Sunday, just to, so we have a lead into this, Matthew chapter 6. You see what Jesus is actually saying to, to his disciples. Uh, Matthew chapter 6 and, and verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasure in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves do not, cannot break in and steal. And there he gives, as is often the case with Jesus, the, the, the principle, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then he sums it up in verse 24. Because, for, in the light of what's being said, no one can serve two masters. Now this is the... This is the challenge. It comes to us face to face now. Either you will hate the one or love the other or you'll be devoted to one or despise the other. By definition, you cannot have serve two masters. Now, let's make this clear so that we don't misunderstand this. From verse 24, Jesus is saying, you need both. You need God and you need mammon. But who's the boss? Whom will you serve? What is, what is the motivation of our lives? That's the point. And we don't need to feel guilty about this. I hope, however, that we should feel deeply accountable, but not guilty. It's not intended, therefore, as we come back to chapter 8 and 9, to make us um, uh, guilty. Um, and I hope this will come up uh, in the screen in front of you, that God is more concerned with how we give than with what we give. I just want to say that again. God is more concerned with how we give than with what we give. 
Look at verse 8 and 9 of the reading that we've had. Come back to 2 Corinthians 8. I am not commanding you. It doesn't work like that. It never has and, and, and it never can. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. We have to have an idea of the church is, is, is an integrated company of people who belong to each other. And then there's this magnificent statement. For you know, experientially, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And this marvelous transaction of our poverty and his riches, and conversely. God is more concerned with how we give than with what we give. Guilt, then, we have to, we have to clear the ground for this so that we, we can be positive here. Guilt as a motivator for giving has a numbing effect. I don't know about you, but for me personally, you've seen these massive floods in, in Pakistan and we've, we've given. For me, a one-off gift and I don't think too much unless I see more pictures. That's what I'm like. What are you like? It has a numbing effect. Compassion fatigue comes in. We've got a life to live and there's so much going on. And there's, there's an earthquake and a tremor and, and, and floods and tempest. And indeed, if we were to take on all the, 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 the sorrows of the world, we would be crushed. We'd actually achieve very little at all. So guilt as a motivator, whether it's one-off or regularly, has a numbing effect. However, instead of guilt as a motivator, let's stay with this. Grace as a motivator, forgiving, has a liberating effect. And I would suggest to you, and some people have proved this time and again, a sustaining effect. A sustaining effect. Look again at Second uh, Corinthians, but this time, chapter 9, look at verse 6. Just think about now this whole area of, of giving. We live in, what is it, the fourth wealthiest country in the world. We are blessed immeasurably. So, Second Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this, because of course we are prone to forget with our lifestyle. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, if I might say, not out of guilt or compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And here it is. This is such a, a blessing that comes not because, but a blessing because this is what God is like. He is able to make all grace abound to you. So that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you'll abound with every good work. Now there you have it. It's, a, it's the way that grace is able to sustain us and sustain the motivation of giving because it has a liberating effect. With this in mind then, just four um, brief um, headings. The first is this. That, and from now on, we'll concentrate on the, the chapter 8, so you can follow as it unfolds before you. First of all, we are, we are to cultivate godly priorities. We make decisions and we stick to them. 
You see that in verses 1, 1 to 5. Um, the, the, the quality of our Christian priorities, of course, can be measured in lots of ways. Let me state the obvious ones. We could measure the quality of our Christian priorities by our prayer life. And you say to me, and I, you say to you, don't go there. That's not my best place. If you were here on Thursday evening, you certainly would have been blessed with uh, a speaker who challenged us about, in a lovely way, about what it is to uh, have a witness among uh, the soldiers and to be a light in harsh and dark places and to sustain prayer life. Can't help but wonder what our priorities are for not praying. Now, any preacher can make anybody feel guilty about prayer life. That is not what I'm saying. It's only a measure of where we're coming from. But then, what about our concern for the glory of God? When we hear our Lord's name being blasphemed, do we say to people, you know, that's my saviour you're talking about. You don't have to uh, be harsh about it. Just say that. Or an index would be an appetite for God's word. Or a true desire to be worshipping him as an expression of all of our lives, not simply on a Sunday. But what we have in these two chapters, we have some of that, but more particular, one of the priorities would be my attitude to money. My attitude to money. I want to read this sentence. It will, I think, come up in front of you. I just want you to think about this. It is possible to give without loving. But it is impossible to love without giving. God so loved the world. How do you know he gave? That's how you know. And in given situations, the only thing people will know from you and me is that we love and we give. Time. I haven't got time, you say. I am busy. Well, we should make time. One of the things about money is it seems to preoccupy our time and our relationships because it gives us so many options. One of the things that's a challenge for those who work with our young people is that when we put things on, they've got at least another two or three choices as to what's, uh, how many parties they're going to, what things they can do, and how many options they have. It is possible to give without loving. It is impossible to love without giving. Giving at the, at the core of our being. And of course, it has a liberating effect upon us that we not only need to be saved from our sins, which is obvious, we need to be saved from ourselves, which is less obvious. I've been reading the life of Christina Rossetti and uh, interesting that she, uh, at a young age, was diagnosed as a compulsive um, personality disorder. And yet, by the grace of God, he was able to work in that exacerbating disability and bring something wonderful and glorious. And how 
It's his grace, so that she could say, what can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I'd bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I'd do my part. What I can, I give him. Yes, and at the core of our being is giving ourselves or giving my heart. And so you have it in verse 5. And Paul seems to say this almost as a surprise. Look, what does he say? And they did not do as we expected, talking about the church. But they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. What a, what a lovely surprise. They gave themselves first. That's the point. That's the point. Secondly, we are to keep a healthy balance. Uh, somebody asked me once, it was an Irish girl, my niece in fact, she says, how can you tell a balanced Ulster man? And I said, I have no idea. She said, well, he's got a chip on two shoulders. That's what she said. And I said, you could say that about the Welshman. Easy. Well, how do we keep a healthy balance? In a sense, we can't. Because all of us have fatal bias. We are essentially unbalanced. But the challenge is for us to, to work, to strive, to keep a balance. with it, Knowing our own temperament. Being open and honest about our besetting sins. Facing them. Not living superficially, pretending. How do we keep a healthy balance? Well, look at verse 6. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this, the grace of giving. Yes, it's money. But it's more. The grace of coming back and giving yourself. Giving yourself. Because it's possible to excel in all these things and hold back that essential you. Holding it back. Surely it's a blessing to belong to a growing church. A church with good teaching. A church with lively worship that has a measure of unity. But what is it to be part of a church that has a spirit of generosity? Now, there's a thing. So let me put another reverse sentence to you, if you like. Yes, it's possible to give without a spirit of generosity. You can give out of duty. You can give out of tradition or guilt. Or lots of reasons. Yes, it's possible to give without a spirit of generosity. However, it is impossible to be generous without giving. And the, and the essential thing here, the giving of yourself. That's the hardest thing to give. It's actually harder than money. Giving of your essential self to the Lord and to his people. So in a way, this is not the issue primarily of the giving of money, but the giving of yourself. And this is the surprise that Paul, he actually says it, doesn't he? And verse 5, look, and they did not do as we expected. What a surprise. They first give themselves. There's the thing. Let me be really personal. You probably don't know, but it's worth asking anyway. When people think about you, not now you think about other people. When people think about you and me, 
And they know you quite well. Do they think generosity, opening of your home, giving of your time, using of your gifts, bringing people to church, sharing with your neighbors, how do, how do people think about you? Do they think generosity? Well, it's worth us pondering that. You, maybe you don't know. Maybe it's as well we don't. It's worth thinking about. Thirdly, we are to model the same grace. Paul seems to say, well, you know this. Look at verse 9. This is a wonderful verse. It's our verse that we, we read out at the beginning of the service. For you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now, we are called to model that. Uh, three years ago, I quoted this um, from the obituary of the Times, and some of you will remember it. I want to read this because uh, it, it's, it is, it's deeply moving. Uh, the account of Larry Stewart. Let me, let me read this to you. It'll probably take about three minutes, perhaps less. And this is a summary that was in the national paper. For the past 26 years, the millionaire, Larry Stewart, spent each Christmas roaming the streets of Kansas City giving money to the homeless. And not a mere dollar or a dime, but multiples of 20, 50, 100 dollar bills. Over that period, he gave to the destitute a total of 1.3 million dollars. Stewart became one of America's best known philanthropists only two months ago when he revealed himself to be what was known as the Kansas Secret Santa. Stuart, who had cancer diagnosed, declared in November that he wanted to raise the awareness of the plight of the destitute at Christmas. Well, who is he? Okay. Larry Stewart was himself born into poverty in 1948 in Mississippi. His parents were barely able to feed and clothe him. Young adult life was tough. He fell out of college, had several jobs, and was rendered homeless. One day, in the winter of 1971, Stewart had a life-changing moment. He'd been a door salesman, the company had failed, and he found himself penniless. Not having eaten for two days, he walked into a diner and ordered the largest breakfast that he could, Having consumed it, he pretended to have lost his wallet. With Stuart protesting, the owner of the diner, Ted Horn, approached him and handed him a $20 bill and said, Son, you must have dropped this. Stuart left, knowing, of course, that no one had dropped the $20 bill. It was done to save him the embarrassment. And right then, I quote, he made a promise. This is what he says. I said, Lord, if you ever put me in a position to help, help others, I will do it. You know how sometimes we make promises. It must have been a very moving experience for him. Well, in the course of time, he found his feet 
And he began this program of philanthropy. In the process, he would repeat annually uh, this activity of giving to the poor. And he was escorted by the sheriff of uh, Jackson, um, who was his confidant. In December 1999, he traced down Ted Horn. Long passing of time, but he made a promise. And he knocks at his door, and I quote, can you imagine this meeting? He says, I've come to pay you back. Stuart handed Ted Horn an envelope containing $10,000 cash. You can't help but wonder what discussion ensued. All because of somebody who was willing to be countercultural. You know what I mean? Going against the tide. He certainly would be remembered for his generosity, wouldn't it? And in a sense, generosity creates generosity. And sadly, the opposite does as well. And Paul says here, you know, you know, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when John introduces Jesus, he says, grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, and it should come by you as well, and me. Lastly, this idea of giving and the challenge that it presents us, and you see now it's much bigger than our bank balance, isn't it? That we are to become gracious finishers instead of being good starters. Remember the way Paul put it to the believers at Galatia? You began well, you're good starters. Who has hindered you that you haven't finished? Who's broken in upon you that you've contracted out? And so these verses in 10 and 11, look at this. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, here it is. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. According to your means. One of the questions that we will uh, ask in, in the home group, and it will, I'm sure, stimulate, n not just politically, but just spiritually, really, it's this, Karl Marx, who may well have been influenced by some Christian teaching, that uh, on the banners... Uh, were festooned this um, motto from each according to his ability to each according to his need. That has biblical roots. Of course, it's the willingness not out of political pressure and constraint. From each according to his ability to each according to his need. 
And so you, 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 you have this reference. Um, now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it be matched by the completion of it according to your means. Verse 12. For if the willingness is there, that's what I'm interested in. Not interested in whether you, you know, you, you, you are very wealthy or very poor. I, I, I want to know how willing you are, not how rich you are. I want to know about your heart and your motivation. But if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable. The gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. Do you see that? It, it is so helpful. So we become gracious finishers instead of being good starters. I suppose now, with the death of my, my father, I will perhaps even more think about the things that he said. And um, this whole area of giving that he exemplified so much. Uh, he won't leave a great deal of this world's wealth. I know that. But in terms of giving, and in terms of what it means to have a willing heart, it is surely a great blessing. It's a great blessing. And, and the call for us, really, is this, that we become good finishers. I've kept the faith. I have finished the race. And that should impinge upon the whole of our lives. So the big issue here then is not how gifted are you. Some of you are, are very gifted spiritually, in spiritual gift, intellectually, in the ability to see things and, 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 and to crystallize your thoughts and to be um, good managers and business people and so on and so forth at school and in commerce. And financially. How gifted. That isn't the big issue here. It is not how gifted, but how willing. How willing. One closing comment then. This then isn't limited to our financial generosity. It includes it for sure, but it's not limited to it. But it actually extends to authentic Christian fellowship. A much marginalized word, sadly. And yet it is robust and, and, and so vital for us that we need to be generous in Christian fellowship. Why? Well, Paul ends this section here by quoting from Exodus 16 and verse 8, which is to do with God's people who are utterly dependent upon him, where he provided manna in their pilgrimage. And of course... The catchphrase, what is it? What is it? What is it? Each had sufficient for their needs. Some entrepreneurs took two days' supply and it turned sour. There's a sense here that the church, the fellowship, whatever term we use, is this sort of oasis in, in the arid culture in which we live with, with this materialism that's an end in itself rather than a means to an end. And here we're a fellowship of people. And so Paul quotes from Exodus, He who gathered much did not have too much. And he who gathered little 
did not have too little. And equality isn't being the same. We can be equal but different. Communism imposed a rigid equality. It doesn't work. We are different. And we've been blessed in different ways. And rightly so. But all of us know the privilege and I hope the blessing of giving. 